Like many of you, I'm sure I'm disappointed to be standing up here instead of sitting where you are, preparing my heart to hear from our pastor emeritus, Dr. P. I do hope you'll continue to keep that family in prayer. I heard from Syung this morning. Uh, He was up 10 times in the night and has been sleeping much of the day. So pray that God would continue to strengthen him. And also take a moment to celebrate God's goodness to us as his people, to allow us to sit beneath the teaching of this man for so many years. So uh, continue to pray in that way. I am then not going to be preaching on how you can avoid temptation of taking a nap during this next 30 minutes. I am going to return to the book of Acts and our Not Ashamed series, and I've got to be honest with you, I feel uh, somewhat conflicted in this message. I honestly don't know how to preach this message to you. I'm not saying this to be in any way critical. I don't know how to preach it to my own people in Canada. It's a message that's hard, that's difficult for comfortable Christians to comprehend. So as a Canadian, my generation is the first generation that has never known warfare. We have never really been hungry. Uh, We are the comfortable generation, the first educated generation, the first generation that expected we are going to always do better than our parents did. We don't know much suffering. And consequently, that kind of bends our theology Consequently, in a nation like Canada or like Singapore, the smallest discomfort is communicated as suffering, even sometimes for us who are Christians, as persecution. I I heard uh, this week, increasingly, Singaporean unis don't love to have Christian evangelists on campus because we're being persecuted. That's a challenge for us. We're, We're used to a culture that is propping up our particular faith. At least, I am. So when Sherry and I were serving in China, we experienced another kind of believer. I think at some mission conference in the past, I shared the story of bringing some trainers from uh, the U.S. to Xinjiang in the Northeast. And during a break time, I started overhearing the students talking about when they graduated from seminary. And I was really frustrated because... I was like, why are you here if you've already graduated from seminary? I mean, American training is not any better than China training. It's the same Bible. And they all started laughing. And, uh, you know, I was worried that, you know, in the translation, I missed some nuance. And I said, right? You said you graduated from seminary. And they said, yes, teacher. They always call me teacher. Yes, teacher. But in China, when we say seminary, we mean prison. Now, I'm pretty sure... That if something happened in this sermon and somebody listening on the internet was offended and we all got arrested, we wouldn't consider that a good training opportunity. Right? Because that is so far outside of our paradigm as comfortable Christians. In the nation of comfortable Christians, the gospel that sells, that fills up buildings is the gospel that informs me God is hard at work, Ian, so you can be even more comfortable. In fact, God resents it a little bit that lost people have all your stuff. Right? I mean, if diamonds aren't for you, Ian, who did God make them for? 
That is not the gospel, according to Acts. It's not the gospel we discovered in China. So I encountered, I carved out a part of that group that were boasting about when they when they graduated from seminary. And one small guy who wasn't even from Xinjiang, he was from way up near the Russian border, he took the train that far just so that he could get training. He wasn't a pastor, he wasn't a missionary, but he was serving as a pastor in prison. And, and, and he got arrested because he was selling, he sold the school supplies. But when he sold school supplies, in every bag he would put a Bible. And he got arrested for illegally selling religious materials. And while he was in prison, he started to preach because he had an audience. And, and he, he was the guy that told me, now, now teacher, Outside, I was really a lousy preacher. I didn't get asked to do any teaching because I'm very boring. I, I teach one time, nobody comes back. But in seminary, meaning in prison, I preach terrible, people stay. And, and I said, so did you have a sermon series? He said, no, actually, I could only remember one Bible verse. No Bible in prison. John 1, 9. But if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. I preached that sermon every week for three years. And, and God somehow used that. And then he said this, because remember, teacher, in our suffering, God grows the church. Where did he get that phrase from? But in our suffering, God grows the church. This man who only memorized one Bible verse in all of the Bible, where in the world did he get that from? 150 years or so after the birth of Christ, this man was born to a Roman centurion in Carthage in North Africa. His name was actually Quintus Tertullianus. We know him as Tertullian. He was not a pastor. He was not a priest. He wasn't even a deacon. But at the age of 27, he heard the gospel in Carthage, and that gospel was the power to save him. And he was radically transformed. He became a strong defender of the faith and a prolific author. He also observed that in North Africa and in Rome, Whenever something bad happened, Christians, this sect called Christianity or Little Christ, was singled out for punishment. So he once famously wrote this, when the Tiber River rises too high or the Nile too low, Christians are always the solution, actually feeding them to the lions is the solution. For every crisis, whether famine or flood, or even when the city catches on fire, the solution is always feed more Christians to the lions. This layman who studied law in Alexandria became the great defender of the faith. And in this 50-chapter huge volume that he wrote not to the church, he didn't write it to the Christian community, he wrote it to Roman provincial governors, 
The work was called apologeticus. Apology is our English word. But apologeticus means defense. And, and in this 50-chapter huge defense of Christianity, it was his proposition that these strange people called Christians should be treated under the law like every other religious sect. In other words, let them be. And it was in the last chapter 50 that he made this statement, his most famous quote, that somehow made it all the way to Xinjiang, China. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I have heard this phrase in some form all my life. Growing up in, in a Christian home in a nation that is going far away from Christianity, I was often given this phrase to what? Explain or comfort me. In fact, I remember my brother said it first. When I was about seven, he grabbed me by the ankles just because boys play like boys. And he was swinging me around in our basement under the ground and my head hit the corner of a trunk. And my, and my brother, in the midst of my loud protest to God and my parents and all the neighbors, he shouted, remember, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And I remember in California, an old deacon, when, when I was explaining as a youth pastor how I was kicked off of a high school campus, he said, quoting Tertullian, he said, remember this, young man, you're suffering is the blood of something, and anyway, the church is going to grow. But my question, after 27 years of serving in the mission field with many missionaries, is, is it really? Does persecution really create church growth? Is the blood of the martyrs really the seed of the church. This afternoon, I want to invite you to join me in Acts chapter 8. And for those of you who are really, really unhappy that there's no outline in the ministry guide, here's three points that I may or may not cover. Number one, a spark ignited. It only takes a spark. How many of you sang that song? It only takes a spark to get a fire going. Now, we sang that a lot because campfires are nice in Canada. I'm, I'm thinking it's not very nice here. We sang that a lot, youth group. It only takes a spark to get a fire going. A spark ignited, number one. Number two, the flame grows. Number three, the result is surprising. Obviously, I ran, ran out of creative juices. Acts chapter 8, 1 through 8. First, look at the spark that was ignited. And basically, we've already covered that. That was under a... Uh, you know, the inconvenient truth, Stephen's sermon, the spark ignites in, in the last part of chapter 7, the first part of verse 1 of chapter 8. Now, this is how it goes, beginning in verse 60. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul, that impudent student of, of Gamaliel, he approved of this. What? Of his death. And at that point, 
Everything changed. That sermon changed everything for the followers of the way or from the disciples. They weren't even really being called the church at this point. So it changed dramatically everything. First, it crushed the assumption that this new belief was going to be a Jewish reformed movement. Because they were all Jews who simply said, we found him, the Messiah has come. He lived, he taught, he was crucified for our sins, and because he is in fact God, he demonstrated his power over death by rising again. They did not intend at any point in time to begin a new world religion. They were Jews. This was a Jewish reformation until that sermon. And from that point on, it pushed those believers out of the temple and out of the synagogue. Because you remember, initially, the problem they had in the temple was with those who ran the temple. That was the Sadducees. They had problems with the Sadducees because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. But this time, they had problem with the Pharisees who believed in their occupation. And if there's a group of people in the synagogue teaching, we no longer need a high priest, but we have a great high priest who came with his own blood into the holiest of holies. He is our mediator. And that's a problem for that occupation. So this was the moment that the church was pushed out of the synagogues, pushed out of the temple. And I wonder if it was at this moment. Have you ever read the New Testament and then you come to a verse and you're like, I've never seen that before. It happens to this pastor a lot. I wonder if at that moment, Suddenly, those believers remembered Luke's first book, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, verses 12 and 13, when Jesus says, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and to the prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake, not because you're Jewish, But because of the name Jesus Christ, you will be brought before governors and you'll be brought before synagogues. And this, here it is, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. I don't know if you heard that. This is another inconvenient truth because Jesus doesn't say, okay, when you're brought before judges and in the synagogue courts, when you're brought before governors, this will be your opportunity to trust in my protection. He doesn't say, this will be your opportunity to defend your name and your reputation. He says simply, this, meaning persecution, it is a platform for the gospel. It is your opportunity to bear witness. And that is why that one Greek word, which we have translated with two in English, bear witness, The word is martyrion, martyr, witness. This will be your opportunity to share all that you have seen and heard. And from that spark, we're moving to point two, the flame grew. Acts chapter 8, 
1b to verse 3. But first let me read verse 1. And there arose that day, this turning point, at Stephen's death, there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, this is going to be really important. Let me just point out several things that you ought to note. You ought to write these down. First, notice that from this point on, Luke begins to consistently identify the believers, not as disciples, not as followers, but as the church. And when he says the church, this is just a secular Greek word for a gathering of people. This is all that he was calling them. So this gathering of people, there arose a great persecution, not against an institution of the church, not against a building called the church, but against this gathering of people who began to be called the gathering, the church. The, the second thing to notice is if, if you were raised like me with the concept of what I call a sovereign stick God, or this is Singapore, so acronym SSG, let, let me tell you that SSG means you believe that God is like a disapproving teacher hovering over your shoulder just waiting for you to make the wrong stroke when you're writing so she can whack you with that cane. I know that because I'm left-handed and I got hit with a ruler all the time on my knuckle because I could not make the slant go the right way. And you see, a lot of us, we develop from our culture our concept of God. He is this disapproving teacher who's hovering over me, and as soon as I make one wrong move, he is going to smack me with that stick, that SSG God. And here's the important thing. I don't know if you've heard this. I've heard it all of my Christian life. So you see, church, if we are not faithful and obedient to God, then he's going to bring persecution against us. Right? A sovereign God is going to use persecution to make us obedient and get on board with missions. Well, just think practically about that for a moment. If this was an, a disobedient church, if this was a church that, that God was unhappy with, that was doing all the right things wrongly and all the wrong things with energy, do you think God would say, oh, that's a disobedient church, I think I will spread them around? Really? God is not the author of persecution. But a sovereign God is able to rework the plans of broken men for his glory. There was a great persecution, not because God said, let it happen, straighten out these people, send them all out. He was confident that this persecution would not break a faithful people, but that they would go faithfully. So here is what has happened. The third thing is really important. You remember the anxiety you felt before Pastor Arnold came? 
what are, what are we going to do if we don't have a senior pastor? We've got to get a senior pastor. This may also be one of those verses that you've read many times and never noticed. But this first great movement, this explosion of the church, was not because those apostles were awesome and went everywhere sharing the gospel. This was a lay The church, the believers, were scattered. All of the church, except the apostles who stayed in Jerusalem. It is important that we understand that God does not need a professional class of Christian to help him out. It is our calling to be faithful with the treasure of the gospel. Now, verse 2. I want to address this for a moment. Devout men buried Stephen and make great lamentation over him. I don't know what happened, would happen in the Singaporean church, but in Canada, when a minister's plan goes awry, we need to have an evaluation. <laughs> in, in Vancouver, uh, just, um, I heard the news, our new lead pastor at Emmanuel... He launched this initiative. It didn't go that well. Everybody wanted to have an evaluation. What were the outcomes you were after, Pastor? Because that sure didn't turn out well. You know, why weren't they doing this here? Where is the EGM in the first century calling out the apostles? Why are you letting deacons preach anyway? They need to stay in their lane and serve the widows. This guy is off the hook. He's doing crazy things. You should have never let that happen. There was no judgment. There was only deep grief that is a man who has loved another paying debt to his affection. Scripture says, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation, meaning grieving, mourning over him. There was no one self righteously wagging a finger at this deacon who filled with the Spirit of God preached. There was no one saying, why did you have to say stiff neck? That means Pharisees don't even know how to turn to God serious. Don't preach like that. Stay in your lane. No one did that. Everyone just grieved. And by the way, stop saying when a loved one dies, hey, we're Christians, we don't need to grieve. When we grieve, it is a sign that we have loved. You know Jesus. You have hope. There will be a reunion. One day, those devout men who wept out loud over the loss of this deacon brother, they will have a reunion. But right then, their heart cried out in grief because they loved him deeply. And then verse 3, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, Now, just so you know, the church is singular. This is not proof text for the house church model. People were the church 
in order to find the church that had left the temple, had left the synagogues, Saul, that impudent student of the principle of the Pharisees, had to go house to house looking for the church. Let me say this, GBC, we better be the church when we leave this place. We're only the church inside these walls. We are phony religious people. They were the church. They didn't come to church. They were the church. So every June, because I have been a missionary, I check the Pew Research Center. Because June is when they submit their reports for global trends and restriction of religion. And last June, 2016, they submitted their report on the global trends of restriction of religion, both social restrictions and governmental restrictions. And here's some highlights. Almost 70% of all of the world's citizens live with some social and governmental restrictions of religion. Of 198 countries surveyed, 86 had experienced in 2016 religiously motivated terrorist activity. Those who were most likely to die for their religious belief in 2016 were you people. It's not a surprise. Don't allow your heart to be filled with moral outrage. It has been this way since Stephen's sermon. The only question I would wonder is, does that really make the church grow? I was curious about this, so I compared those statistics in 2016 with Operation Outreach's manual on the rapidly growing movements of Christianity around the world, and what I discovered was this. Sometimes persecution seems to be a catalyst for growth, and sometimes persecution seems to be a catalyst for the extinction of the church. In other words, the blood of the martyrs sometimes just waters the earth. So what was different in Acts 8? What has been different in China? The results, I think, like remember when Tertullian wrote all of North Africa was Christian. When Tertullian wrote Apologeticus, all of Turkey was Christian. In fact, do you, do you know the first missionaries to China were not from the China Inland Mission? They were from Syria. A friend of ours um, in the mid-90s was serving in one of the most difficult parts of our world. The the life expectation for the average man in this country is 49. That means I'm already 20 years beyond. I remember sitting in a hotel room with him in Chiang Mai, and he was sitting on his bed just weeping because every single Christian leader poured his life into Oh, Sherry, you're laughing because I did the math wrong. 
Hey, 10 years. You know pastors and pastors' wives have signs? This means, no, don't tell that illustration. And laughter means something about math. He was weeping in our hotel room as he told me every single Christian leader he had poured his life into for six years had been martyred. And he had just been told that it wasn't safe. He and his wife could not go back. What makes the difference? The result is surprising. Verses 4 through 8. I found this photo. I don't know if you can see it because it's too so bright in here. He charred a forest and one green shoot coming out of the black and gray of the burnt forest bed. Verse 4 says, Now those who were scattered, be with me, but those who were scattered went about preaching the word. These were not professional ministers. These were not pastors. These were not a professional class of missionaries. These were ordinary lay people. They were ordinary men and women saturated with the Spirit of Christ who could not but help but speak about what they had seen and heard. If missionary were an occupation, the spark of the gospel would be easy to extinguish. If the evangelist was some specialized professional vocation, then the Christian faith would be, among any group, easy to extinguish. But this is what it looked like in verses 4 and 7. Philip, another deacon, by the way, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the gospel of Christ. And by the way, this is the town that was well seated by the witness of a woman who had had five husbands and was now living with a man who was not her husband. She wouldn't qualify for membership, would she? But she qualified to tell everyone in Samaria what she had heard and seen from Jesus of Nazareth. And when Philip went, he went to a city that was well seated with that woman's testimony. And as he preached, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. It does not say they paid attention to his good lifestyle. It doesn't say that they were so impressed by how well he lived his life. In one accord, they were riveted by what he said. You've got the same story to tell. If you have met the living, resurrected Jesus, you have got that story to tell. But somehow you are convinced that it's boring, that nobody wants to hear it. Listen, when they heard him and saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out from many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. I'm just going to say that as this as a Baptist who does not have the gift of healing or tongues or anything charismatic, I am tired of missionaries before they go into a temple say, let's pray a prayer of protection. You heard me say this. 
When Jesus was confronted by the demonic, they only had a few responses. One is fall down and worship. So just let that bounce around in your head. The demonic really know how to praise Jesus. Or they pled for mercy, or they fled for their demon lives. It wasn't just that he spoke the word. It's he spoke the word and the obvious evidence that wherever he was, the spirit of Christ was and darkness dissipated. Do you know the gospel needs to not just change my heart, it ought to transform entire communities. When we get that building built on Matar Road, I'm looking, are we, is our presence going to transform the community of McPherson? Are we just going to be the spiritual bubble parked right there in a brand new glossy bubble? Spirits fled, darkness dissipated, as Philip, this layman, told what he knew to be true about Jesus. The result, verse 8, there was much joy in that city. Much joy. You, You see what persecution does when ordinary believers just naturally, not not naturally, supernaturally share boldly the good news of Jesus Christ. Darkness flees and joy is spread around. And not because God is saying, I'm going to use this stick of persecution to beat my church into obedience, but because a sovereign God orders persecution to be a platform for his glory. So, I'm going to say this the gentlest way I know how. GBC, you know, one of the first things I noticed when I came as a guest to the old building was this big poster on missions. And you know, for a visitor, it's impressive. I saw the goal was like, $640,000. I'm like, wow. Now, now I don't know if it's three hundred and fifty or half a million dollars this church gives to missions every single year, but listen to me, I love you, but giving to missions does not make GBC missional. Just because I think we ought to be giving more to missions and, and, and doing more work missionally, that doesn't make me more missional. You know, see, only in the church, only in Christianity, can we make these kinds of assumptions, right? I mean, has any one of you ever had a friend saying, hey, I'm, I'm an awesome auto mechanic. I, I mean, I take my car to the auto repair every single month to get the oil changed, get it tuned up. I am awesome In auto repair. No, you're not. If you were awesome, you wouldn't take your car to the auto repair. Paying somebody to do auto repairs doesn't make you an expert. Paying somebody to do your mission work does not make us missional. Because the mission of God does not belong to a professional class 
of parachurch mission worker belongs to the church. And when we support missionaries, we are really saying these are our people who are extending the ministry of this local church to Cambodia or Indonesia. We are not paying somebody to do the work we find inconvenient. So, a few moments, we're going to sing the last song. And then this church is going to scatter. The, the reason why we scatter is not the point. This church scattered because of persecution. We're going to scatter because what? We have an appointment. We have a family dinner. We're hungry. The question is not why you scatter. The question is when you scatter, are you still the church? Do you understand? The church in Acts didn't get in trouble for singing happy songs. The church didn't get in trouble. They were not persecuted because they were religious. They were persecuted because they refused to stop telling people what they had seen and heard. So the question is not why we scatter. The question is, who will we be when we leave? What will we say when we leave? I want to invite you to bow with me just for a moment. I am not at all asking you today to commit to doing something uncomfortable. There honestly would be no point to that. I'm not asking you to do something that will get you in trouble, that will cause you to be persecuted. I'm just asking you to stop coming to church. Start being the church. Wherever you find yourself, be like an Acts 8 believer who is a follower of Christ, not just in the gathering, but followed him wherever they went. And wherever they went, couldn't stop giving testimony to the things that they had seen and heard. Have you heard anything from the Lord today? Anything in what we sang about his grace and his mercy to you? Have you sensed anything of his brokenness over the fact that every single day a new city is being created in hell from people who have not heard? Or religious people gather in their social study groups, point fingers at the lifestyles of the lost, who get angry because the blind can't see that the lame can't walk toward him, that all of humanity is born with stiff necks, unable to turn. If religion could turn my neck toward God, I would gladly embrace it. But the good news is, we serve a God 
who loved us so much, he gifted us with repentance. Faith came not because it suddenly made sense to us, not so that science suddenly could prove it to us. Even that was his gift. Isn't that something you'd like to talk about? Isn't it glorious in this nation of meritocracy that you can boast about something, just one thing you didn't earn? It came simply by grace. Grace. God's grace. Father God, as heads are bowed here today, uh, teach us how to lift our hearts toward you. Teach us how. Give us a, a thirst to be the church, not just here on a Sunday afternoon, but as we scatter, empower us to be the church, to speak confidently as children of the Most High. May darkness flee as your church is scattered so that men and women in Singapore may know that there is a God worthy of honor and glory who calls his people, who perfects his people, who saves. So God, we invite you. Will you not give us the honor of representing the gospel this week, of being the church in our school at our work, in our neighborhood, in this nation, wherever you take us. Equip us to be your body. We ask this so that your name would be exalted. And we pray it in the beautiful name of Jesus.